Hey friends, I'm Megan Meredith. I've been on an interesting journey the past 10 years. It's been full of plot twists, as I'm sure your own journey has been. One thing I've learned is that people are fascinating and full of stories. We all come from diverse backgrounds and have complicated backstories. We experience the world completely differently and we don't always agree. And that's okay because there is always something we can talk about. Welcome friends. I'm glad you're here today. My guest today is someone that I'm thrilled to introduce you to. She is a nationally respected thought leader in early care and education. Dr. L. Carol Scott has a bachelor's in anthropology and child development, a master's in early childhood education, and a PhD in developmental psychology. Dr. Scott is a TEDx speaker, an author, a coach, and a trainer. She brings her clients unique models that are based on this truth that relationships are at the heart of all success. We talk about a lot of really rich stuff today, such as early childhood development, the acronym ACEs, and relationships. And if all of that doesn't recommend her enough, she also happens to be my aunt. She is one of my favorite humans, and I'm thrilled to let you guys listen into this conversation. She has a special gift for you at the end of the episode, so you have to listen all the way to the end to know how to get that. Enjoy. Hi, Carol. Hi, Megan. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thanks for being here. I am so glad to be here. I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. Me too. I'm so glad we could make it happen. Let's just jump right in. Tell me more about you and kind of your story, like little Carol and how Carol got here and what Carol is most passionate. Okay. Most passionate about. I love the way you word that question. That's wonderful. I grew up in a pretty, what looked like a pretty normal family in the Midwest. Midwestern, white, middle class, you know, not 2.5 children because back in the 50s, that was a small number. So there were five of us <laughs> and I was in the middle, oldest girl, middle child. And we grew up in a you know, little modest suburb in the Kansas City area, went to good schools, had, you know, what looked like a pretty stable life at the beginning. But a lot of times the external appearance of a family or a household to the world is not what's really going on behind the closed doors. Mm. And so we were also a family full of trauma. My father was an alcoholic. Uh, My mother was ill-equipped to deal with five children, period, let alone a sixth child who was a grown alcoholic. And life was pretty tough in a lot of ways when I was small. And so I know we're going to talk about that in more detail later. And so as I grew up, I just thought that that all the things that we lived with and all the ways that those things affected me, all the ways those harms affected me were just the way it was. That was just life. Mm -hmm. It was normal. I thought everybody had that. And so I came into my young adulthood, like teen years, really, really unstable emotionally, no tools for interpersonal success. And so I pretty quickly found drugs and alcohol as an alternative, started drinking and doing street drugs when I was like 15, 16 years old Mm. and continued to expand and expound upon that through college years. And then, you know, so here I am, I'm out of my bachelor's degree in child development and my bachelor's degree in anthropology. And here I am at 21, absolutely no way to navigate the adult world, adult sexual relationships, or in any way be a healthy grown up, but driven 
to be successful academically, professionally. And so that's what I did. I was great at school. I was great at work. I'm a thinker. I'm a writer. And I, that just, I made a career out of that. And when continued to study child development, got a master's degree in early childhood education, and then pursued a PhD in developmental and child psychology, which is a very fancy name for child development at level 392, <laughs> where you learn all the things. And so I turned to a career, then I, I entered a career that was about young children in learning environments. And so I worked for 40 years in the arena of childcare, Head Start, preschool, all the places children are in groups when they're not with their families from birth until they go to kindergarten. And I worked a little bit in public schools with kindergarten through third grade. So my focus has always been birth to about seven, eight years old. That's my area of expertise is how kids grow in that period and how we support that or don't with family activity and with our educational environments. Mm -hmm. And I capped that off at, in my mid fifties to mid sixties with what I really considered a real um, kind of keystone uh, cornerstone career role as the CEO of a state level nonprofit that promoted high quality environments for children when they weren't with their parents called mm. Child Care Aware of Missouri and was also the president of the board for the national organization. So I had both my own state's perspective on how we do for kids in those environments and a national perspective. And then I left that job in 2016 and decided to have a whole different third act of my life in my <laughs> 60s and 70s and beyond to take what I know about child development and help us as adults find the ways in which we can do development over if it isn't serving us now. Because what I know for sure is those first seven years absolutely make us who we are. Stop thinking of it as shaping or influential mm. or uh, tinkering around the edges of something that already exists. Your first three years make you who you are. And if we don't know that, we can't do anything about the fact that it, the thing we are needs. A, so that's my passion is giving the little help. Yeah. I love that. Let's talk about that. Those first three years for a second, because that just like sparked something in my brain. Obviously, you know, my daughter and you know, my daughter's story more than my listeners do. And I'm not <sighs> going to share that story because that's her story to share. But I will say that her first two years were very tumultuous before she came into foster care. So kind of speak to that when a child has tumultuous or traumatic first couple years, how does that affect their development, their relationships, and, and just sort of their personality? What does that look like when your first couple years aren't ideal? That's a really good place to start, Megan. And we need, I would like to take it down, take the answer down first to a very small micro level, because mm -hmm. that helps us understand the bigger answer to the, the big question you're asking. When we're born, each, every single one of us is born with what I like to think of as a skull-shaped bowl full of loose pasta. <laughs> Your fine little hairs of neurons, all like angel hair pasta in a bowl, a hundred billion neurons in your skull that are not yet connected to each other mm. at all. So uh, you have some core functions wired up, the neurons that go to your eyes to bring you visual input, to bring you visual data from the world. Those are hooked up. Your neurons to your ears, 
should this this is normal development this is if you come out you know cooked all the way and with everything Mm -hmm. right you know your neurons for your ears are hooked up and you can hear your neurons for tactile input from your skin from kinesthetic input from your body's movements proprioceptive data input from inside your body that you can feel your stomach rumbling you can feel your heart beating you know, if you really tune in, you can feel your respiration. So your body has signals inside and you have signals along the outside of your skin. Fabric touches you from your clothes, breezes blow across your hair. Things, things touch just immediately around your skin as an extraceptive piece of input. So all of your neurons to bring you that data, they're ready. Nothing else is ready. You become who you are. You are wired up one neural connection will actually more like a million neural connections per second at a time based on what comes in through those sensory systems. So your experience in the world from the moment you are born and actually a little bit before that um, is actually wiring your brain and minute by minute, second by second, every single sensory impulse from those systems brings neurons together into places that are firing electrical signals together. And the more they fire together, Hebb's law, it's called, says they wire together. What fires together, wires together. And the more it fires, the harder it wires, the more sort of embedded in the network it becomes. You can think of a metaphor that I like is take a piece of paper that is flat and take the two edges or the, you know, the, the sides and bring them together and let them touch each other, but don't press together or or help them stay in any way, just let them touch and let go. Well, what happens? The paper falls flat again. Mm-hmm. But if you keep folding it over and over again, and you keep at, you know, keep applying pressure to it over and over again, you'll create a fold in the bottom edge of the paper. And eventually you'll get enough fold there that when you let go, it doesn't fall open, it stays folded. That's kind of how brain wiring works. It's repetition across the same pathway wow. that makes it stable. And so from birth to three, of what will be your final brain architecture is wired up in that manner based on your sensory experiences. So to think about what your daughter experienced dysregulating, I'm going to guess, dysregulating emotional environments Mm -hmm. where people were agitated, angry, violent, perhaps, physical touches to her body that were not gentle and caring and loving, but were hurtful, inability to get away from all of that. All of those kinds of fear-based trauma experiences, what, and I would ask, you know, just knowing her, I would guess that probably several of what we call the adverse childhood experiences were part of that sensory input for her. Mm-hmm. And so her little brain by two was getting to be about 60, 70% wired up around that sensory input mm-hmm. before it stopped. And she started having different kinds of sensory experiences. Mm-hmm. And so her body has to find a way to survive. You know, the brain wants to survive and it needs, it needs to be fed, needs to be fed glucose and it needs to, to act. It needs to do things. It needs to have activity. And so it will create activity for itself and, and it will do things It will create outputs for us. I listened to your last episode this morning and so many of the things that you were talking about, about the way we regulate and keep feeling safe we try all these tools when we're little, mm-hmm. we create these masses of dysfunctional behavior for ourselves simply because our brain is trying to keep us safe yeah. and keep that sense of threat from the amygdala away. So your daughter grew up with her amygdala telling her all the time, I'm not safe. 
because its job is to go ask the question every second. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And her brain was wired around, hell no, you're not. (laughs) Right. And so was mine. And so, yeah. And so the great news is that for not for every child, but for many children, that early hell no, you're not safe rewiring can be rewired with effort later in life as adults. And for some of us that without the relief of resilience factors, when it's so unrelenting and there's never a break, that that just changes your DNA. I think it changes Mm -hmm. fundamentally and creates outputs from the central nervous system that cannot maybe be rewired Mm -hmm. the same way other things can. And I'm learning a great deal about this myself now at almost 68 years of age. So just like you're saying, oh my gosh, I'm learning all the time about this. Me too, girl. Yeah. So explain a little bit, speak to like what, not necessarily what classifies, but like, what is an adverse childhood experience? Is there, is there like a list Are yeah. are there things that people can go find to like, cause I, I think that some people know what that is, but I would say probably the vast majority of people have never heard that term. I believe that is true. And I am sad to hear it. So yeah, this is actually a research documented list of 10 experiences that children have when they're, you know, young. This is, this is young children mostly because the, you know, I said the brain is 85% wired by three. Well, it's 95% wired by five. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of walk out into the world with what you got until you're about 12, 13, 14, when your brain starts to prune away some of those lightly folded connections that didn't fire enough to become permanent. The brain takes a look when you're 13, 14 years old and says, Hey, yeah, man, we haven't used that much. Let's cut that away. That's taking up space. We're not using. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you lose any, any out of the norm experience as you know, you lose the wiring for those. So yes, these are our 10 specific items that came out of research that began in, I'm going to probably say the late 1980s, but certainly the early 1990s. And started out as an obesity study, interestingly enough, and became, became one of the earliest pieces of research documentation that there are uh, social and emotional determinants of physical health. And so if you have in your past, one of the three forms of abuse, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, one of the two forms of neglect, physical or emotional, Mm -hmm. or any of these five household dysfunctions, there is a mental illness in your, one of your adults, the adult caregiver, somebody's bipolar, somebody's really dysregulated in some way in their mental health. Mm -hmm. Somebody is involved in crime. That's the second one. It's a crime engaged or incarcerated adult who is your part of your family adults. And I'm being very open about who that is because Some people grew up with two, you know, mom and a dad parents, and some people grew up with grandparents and aunties and uncles and uh, boyfriends of their (laughs) mothers Mm -hmm. and all kinds of people as their adults. The third household dysfunction category is a caregiver who is treated violently in your presence. So one of your adults is beaten up on another one of your adults, and it happens in front of you, you're aware of it. The fourth one is you lose a caregiver through divorce, through death, Uh, they're absent from Mm -hmm. your life. And then the fifth one is substance abuse by one of your adults, drugs, alcohol, possibly also eating disorders and other kinds of abuse of substances. Those are all dysregulated outputs. Mm -hmm. And what the researchers discovered through looking at, they weren't looking for what was wrong with kids, people's backgrounds. They were looking at what do all these people with diabetes and heart disease have in common that we can say 
why do all, why are there so many people in this particular category? What's their commonality? Wow. And so that what they found was that people with chronic, uh, long-term debilitating physical illnesses as adults, diabetes, heart disease, also things like addictions, those people are much more likely to have multiple ACEs. And what they discovered is about 52 or so percent of the population back then had at least one. And with divorce rates rising and so many deaths in the past few years, I'm going to guess that's probably higher now. Yeah. And about percent of the population has four or more. Wow. And this is what I mean when I say the difference between your daughter's kind of point of outcome at this time and other people's outcomes from multiple aces, Mm -hmm. because I'm going to just guess that she had multiple aces, Mm -hmm. is that the resilience factors, the balancing. So I grew up in a place where there were other things that helped. I, I had a good, I had good schools. I had good teachers. I had a neighborhood that was safe. I could go out and play in my yard and out in the neighbor's yards. I could go into the houses of other people that I lived nearby and I could see how other parents behave toward their children and Mm. get different experiences. And I, you know, all through my childhood, I had a lot of good models and I got a lot of wiring that was positive Mm. as well as, you know, it's like I got I got an alternative and some kids never get that. It's relentless. And that's different. That's a different Mm -hmm. outcome. So I think what we want to hear from this really, Megan, is everybody needs to become the expert on their own history and their own need for recovery because each of us Mm -hmm. is different. Uh, My current coach, who's teaching me a lot about applied neurology and healing my nervous system, likes to say, you know, that each of us is, you know, wired differently and we each need to become the expert on our own central nervous system. What works for you to heal? I love that. What are there other resiliency factors that contribute to a person rewiring that? I think when we get to the, the change later, when we're in charge, you know, so much of what we get wired with is like, we're not in charge. We can't even hardly talk yet at three to express ourselves to people. And so we don't get to participate in the first wiring. So if we're willing as adults to become conscious, to become self-aware that there is wiring in there that is not working for us. Mm -hmm. If we stop looking at ourselves as deficient or failures and start looking at the fact that our brains have kept us alive as best they could until now, and now it's time to take a look at how they did that. How have we stayed safe and sane ish until now Mm -hmm. and how can we let go of some of that history that wiring and so I my work starts with repatterning behavior and what I you know I want to distinguish between um, my work works really well for everyone and people with severe trauma history need other work as well Mm -hmm. because once you repattern your behavior you actually have to get down to the central nervous system's wiring and all of that amygdala constantly yelling at you you're not safe hello you're not safe you can't live like that it's not sustainable and so eventually you have to do work like I'm doing now similar Mm -hmm. to the you know things like neuro-linguistic programming and applied neurology and EFT tapping there's so many tools now that we know how the central nervous system works we have tools to help people actually rewire the neurology Mm -hmm. that's not my work but I know people who do it and I'm engaged in that work myself right 
But my work is about changing how you engage with other people as a way mm. of patterning your behavior. Because what I want to do, as I said, is help people right. and help people cope better and find different ways. So what I do is say, look, when you were little, you had some strategies that were kind of programmed into you and maybe you didn't get to use them very well. So let's take a look at those now because you need them. Mm. How do you trust people? How do you trust in your life that your needs will be met? You mentioned in your, um, I think it was you who mentioned in your podcast yesterday that, or that came out today, that we're so completely vulnerable and needy when we're born. Babies are utterly dependent. Well, so you had to trust. Your best strategy was to trust people to meet your needs. How'd that go for you then? You don't know, maybe. You don't have, you know, maybe all you have is family stories about it. But your body remembers, your body kept score, and your body wired your brain around that. So we can look at what do you do now? When you have a need from other people, when you have an emotional, interpersonal need, how do you get it met? Who's meeting mm -hmm. your need for validation? Who's meeting your need for respect? And how do you define that? What is it they're doing that meets your need? Mm -hmm. what, do you, how, what makes you feel respected? For a lot of people, when they say they want respect, and I ask them what that means, they say, listen to me without interrupting. <laughs> fundamental okay so what we need is someone who will listen to us without interrupting who meets that need in your life right yeah. now how are you trusting who are you trusting for what and let's look at the pattern of your behavior so i do that for trust which is the infant's key strategy the toddler strategy i call independence knowing who you are what you want what you think what you feel and then at three i call it faith your success strategy mm -hmm. is to open up your eyes, look at the world and believe in all things being possible, even if they seem impossible. Believing in things that have no evidence behind them, believing in all your dreams, your spirituality, opening your heart to and your spirit. Mm -hmm. Then at four, the strategy is to close yourself up, cross your arms over your chest and say, prove it. <laughs> and you, may, you don't necessarily mean the things that you were just talking about at three, but prove that life is fair, prove that I'm going to get my share, prove to me that I can get what I want and get along in this world. And so kids uh, start to negotiate with us at four. And so I call their success strategy negotiation. They learn how to get what they want in a very specific way and to craft win-win situations, we hope. Mm. And then at five, our success strategy is to become the little strategic planner of the preschool world and to become someone who can set a goal and make a plan to get there. And so I call that vision, the success strategy of the five-year-old. At six and seven, we learn how to compromise and accept the ups and downs of life. Compromise and acceptance are the success strategies in first and second grade. So I look at the way we do those things as adults. How do you trust? How independent are you how, behind your boundaries? Do you know who you are? Mm -hmm. How much magic do you have in your life? How much can you open yourself to possibility and uh, dreaming? Can you get what you want in a way that doesn't bully other people or make you a codependent narcissistic <laughs> manipulator? How do you make a plan and get where you're going? And then how do you work in a world where there's lots of people doing the same thing? How do you get along in the big sandbox of life and cope with the fact that sometimes not everything goes your way and that that's not a killer. That's not a deal breaker. So that's the patterning work I do. I bring people the opportunity to look at the first seven years through the lens of these seven early strategies for getting along. Mm -hmm. And how are you getting along now with your spouse, with your siblings, with your 
adult children, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, the people you go to church with? How do you get along with people? How's that going for you? Right. It's so fascinating to listen to that list and even thinking through like some people that don't have some of those skills. They don't have some of those things that you mentioned and you can almost go back. And if they're willing to go back, you can say like, what happened in first grade? And, and maybe why didn't you get that skill, that success strategy and, and then almost see kind of the, the delay or the breakdown of development from there. Yeah. And so I call all of this together, your sass, getting your sassy self together is getting your self-aware success strategies in your pockets as an adult. I love you learn how to use trust in a way that helps you get your needs met because that's what you're really trying to do. The little six month old in you is just trying to get her needs met. Mm -hmm. And the world might be telling you, you don't deserve to have your needs met. Your needs are too needy. Your needs are too big. Your needs overwhelm me. Your needs are things I do not understand. You're weird that you need that, you know? So the messages we get aren't, oh, baby, come here and let me give you what you need. That's hardly ever it for us as an adult. Right. So finding our people, finding the people who will meet those needs for us and being clear about who's doing it. That's a level of self-awareness that very few people have. And they're Mm -hmm. stumbling around in the dark, trying to get their needs met from people who will never do it. Mm Mm-hmm. I used to, my, my earliest exposure to this was actually during my therapy. Part of the story I didn't tell was about how, when I was 30, I actually went to, to therapy finally Mm -hmm. and addressed all of that trauma history that I had not been addressing. And my therapist gave me a homework assignment that ultimately led to this repatterning work that I do. And what I found out was I knew what I needed when I sat down and really let myself feel it. I could identify what I needed from other people. And I could even identify where I was trying to get those needs met. And what I found out was I was basically beating my head bloody on a brick wall of Mm. no, and not turning to the very people in my life that could have met the need. It only counted if I got it from mommy, or Mm. it only counted if I got it from daddy. And that's not true anymore. As an adult, it counts from everywhere. Mm If I want the feeling of safety and protection of just being held in a circle of arms and kind of rock back and forth sometimes, Mm -hmm. I can get that from a best friend. I can get that from a spouse partner. I can get that from so many. I can get that from my therapist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can get that need met and not be bereft of it and not have my brain anymore be firing across the pathway that says, you don't get this. You don't deserve this. You can't habit. I identify with that so much because in the trauma therapy that I've been doing for the past three years, we've been talking a lot about just sort of history repeating itself almost in your relationships because of those original wounds that are, that are possibly the same as, you know, the adverse childhood experiences that those originating wounds are then what you're constantly trying to recreate in order to have a different outcome because you are, you're still seeking to have that need, that original wound healed or fixed or that original need met that never got met. And so it's so, it's so interesting that we as adults can then have that space if we find it and are willing to look at it, to go back and say, I don't actually have to have that need met by that person anymore. Yes. I can number one, find it within myself, but number two, trust who I want to trust and is trustworthy to then meet that need. 
Yes. And I, you know, I think one of the hurdles for a lot of folks is thinking that in order to ask the question, in order to say, am I okay? Is the way I'm working, operating in the world, functioning as an adult, really okay? And what can I do to look back at how that got wired into me? The, the sort of foundation assumption is they have to trash their parents. They have yeah. to say they're awful. They did it wrong. They're abusive. And you know what? Not true. Mm-hmm. First of all, every adult is doing the best they can with the tools they have, no matter how woefully insufficient their toolbox is. Right. And everybody is operating out of the brain that got wired for them. Mm. Right. So yeah. if our parents did things that didn't help or were harmful, a awful lot of the time it wasn't intentional or mindful, even. It wasn't, it was part of their central nervous system's efforts to keep them safe Mm -hmm. and keep them from feeling dysregulated. So we look to our parents to co-regulate with us when we're little, when we're small, we just need to know that there's somebody there keeping us safe and we can do all kinds of exploring and discovering and um, being who we are. If there's somebody there always saying, yeah, that's fine. You're good. I got you. Mm -hmm. You're good. It's all right. But a lot of things uh, take adults away from that take our caregivers away from that place and it doesn't have to it's not about you I think about my mom coping with that she's young she has five kids under the age of let's see when my youngest sister was born my oldest brother only would have been about eight or so maybe nine years Mm -hmm. old yeah yeah so okay I I have to carry two places in me now my mom did the best she could and she was working with a lot of trauma outcomes herself perhaps and me I got hurt <laughs> I got mm-hmm. caught in the crossfire and I have to address the fact that I got caught in the crossfire and not judge her as forever horrible yeah yeah, yeah. you know she did some things I wish she wouldn't have and it's nice to be able to talk about those things with your parents mm-hmm. not every adult child and parent can but it's really nice to have those conversations yeah. and I had some of those with my mom before she passed actually it was pretty great But we have to, we have to still say, well, you know, it wasn't enough for me. That's okay that it wasn't enough for me because we know differently now and we do better now. Yeah. I'm so glad that you spoke to that. That's so important to me lately because I think ahead to my own kids and I fully, I fully expect the day that they'll come back to me and be like, mom, this was a really terrible season and I need to talk about it. And I, I hope, I mean, my stance now, and I want it to be that my stance then is like, sit down and say all the words to me, because I agree with you that that was the worst season ever. And I did this and this and this wrong. And and I want to talk about it. And I want to heal together because I think one of the things about the ACEs and even probably people that don't have ACEs is that you can still do things wrong in those first couple of years. And you can feel like you ruined your kid and, or you've just made things so much harder for them because of the way that you parented them. But but I think the ability to own that is so important as a parent to say, I just like you just said, I only had what I had and now I have more and I want to do better and different, but I need to, at some point when they're old enough, say, I really botched that. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I have a very courageous bestie woman I've been friends with for 50 years. And she just did this with her adult son who turned 40. And said, went out to dinner with him and said, you know, you seem to have some issues around this. It was a season. It was a a period in their lives when he was young. And this is the dinner. Ask me anything and I will tell you an honest answer. This is where you get it all. And I just thought that was so 
so brave and courageous for her to do. I respected it enormously, yeah. enormously. Because remember, it's what wires consistent, what fires consistently over mm. and over. So you don't make one mistake and mess up your kid forever. You right. don't make a right. couple of mistakes and mess up your kid forever, especially if you go back and regulate it in the moment. Mm. You go back a, a, an hour or a day later and say, I am so sorry I lost my cool. Yeah. I am so sorry I went there. That was not about you. This is me. And, you know, if you make amends with kids soon after dysregulating yourself, you can stop the trauma from developing in the first place. Mm -hmm. And kids are always going to come back to you with surprises because, yeah, they're, they're going to, they experience you differently than you experience yourself is the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I want all the parents to hear, don't immediately start thinking that you've screwed up your kid in the first three years and he's twisted or she's distorted forever. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, you probably didn't, unless you were consistently absent, consistently, unless you were the source of one of those 10 aces on a pretty regular basis. Mm -hmm. We're not just talking about you losing your temperature, your, your temperature, losing your <laughs> temper and rising your temperature. Yeah. And yelling at kids about cleaning their room and, you know, right. it's when there's a consistent, like a drumbeat mm. of one of those things in a child's life. Yeah. And so one of the things we have to remember is we're not perfect. We're doing the best we can. And you got to be pretty consistently bad most of the time to create an adult who has this level of work to do that I've been talking about. I score seven out of the mm. list of 10, that's an extremely high ACEs score. Yeah. And it would predict, just based on the evidence and data, it would predict that by 30, I would be dead, in prison, addicted and homeless in a mental institution in some way really out of success in life completely. That's what my ACEs score would predict. But fortunately, very blessedly in my life, I also had a huge number of resilience factors to balance mm -hmm. that out. And when I got to the age where I could have fallen apart, I could have broken all the way down. I went to therapy instead. I, I woke up, Megan, I don't know if I've ever told you this story. I woke up the morning after my 30th birthday party, which had been an epic blowout of, you know, cocaine and marijuana and alcohol and all the friends, you know, doing all the things. Yeah. I woke up the, that morning with like this simple question in my head. What if there's something wrong? with the mm -hmm. fact that I use drugs every day. I had never even wow. considered that it was a problem. But once I ask a question like that, I can't unask it. Yeah. <laughs> once I have self-awareness, once I notice something about myself that is a pattern, especially one that I think is unattractive, <laughs> it's over for pretending mm -hmm. it's not there, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Just lost that secret uh, to myself. And so that led me to therapy. And that changed everything because then I had to face, oh, I've got a basement full of baggage. I loved mm -hmm. your basement metaphor. Yeah. It's all tucked away down there. Some of mine was in the attic maybe, but oh my Lord, yeah. the storage compartments were full of trauma baggage. Mm -hmm. And unpacking that changes everything, but it you have does. to start with a place of self-awareness. So when we were talking about the ACEs, you mentioned your SAS model, and I'm going to have you repeat that again, because I, I want to make sure that people get that. But I also want you to talk about your self model. Yeah. You know, when I first started the, what is now the sassy list of seven <laughs> strategies that we get from our early childhood, I called them the seven childhood treasures. Mm -hmm. 
And I still think of them that way a lot, but, but what I know is that when we have these things, that's when we have a real whole personality, a self that is not driven by subconscious internal unknown mechanisms, but is mm -hmm. conscious. And so I decided that self meant, first of all, self-governed because I can't, if I'm being driven by hidden things in my basement, if the, if the memories in the basement are actually running things or the kids I used to be, I mm. often had the experience that a child was popping out in a business meeting. My two-year-old self was now running the show. Oh my gosh, I'm the chair of the board and I'm a toddler. Those kinds of experiences of having the subterranean run the show you know, let me know that in order to run my own show, I needed something to change so that I was working from choice. I was leading. I was the director with the baton in my hand. I was self-governed. And there's another word that's a little bit old fashioned that I actually like better. Sovereign. I had mm -hmm. sovereignty. I wanted sovereignty, Make making myself aware that I am the queen of my life. I am the person here. It is, I don't report to anyone. <laughs> I report to me and to my higher power as I conceive of it. Mm -hmm. So that self-governed piece, that sovereign piece is the anchor of ourselves, that we're the person. Then we have to be aware of who that person is and how she is functioning in the world. So the next, the E in self is ego aware aware of the mind's functioning. Your brain is telling you shite most of the time, <laughs> talking trash to you most of the time. And you can also think of it as sometimes benign. So it's easier to hear the benign brain because most people say, no, I don't do that. And particularly people who associate talking to yourself with being crazy, don't want to say that they talk to themselves, but we all do. So think about how you walk out the door and you narrate the environment to yourself. Oh, what a beautiful day it is. The sun is shining. Look at that tree over there. The way the leaves are waving. Isn't that nice? Oh my gosh, here comes a dog. Oh, that woman walking that dog. What is her name? I'm going to be so embarrassed if I can't remember her name when she gets here. I just met her. I'm so dumb. Why can't I remember? Okay. Yeah. Tell me you don't do that. I do. <laughs> We narrate our experience internally about what we see. And so that little ego voice, what I call my always talking monkey mind, is constantly telling me shite. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's right, but mostly it's not. And so ego aware, hear what I am doing, see, hear what I'm hearing inside, notice my behavior, see myself. Mm -hmm. And face myself fearlessly with courage, I think, is a part of that, too. Because when I first started looking at myself, I didn't think I looked that good. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about my physical appearance. <laughs> right. I'm talking about my behavior and how I interacted with people. So first, recognize that you're sovereign, you're self-governed. Next, hear yourself, notice yourself, become aware of yourself. Third, then, the L is become the leader of your life. Be a leader in the sense that you see the bigger picture. So Stephen Covey, one of the great business gurus of my um, career, had this advice about leadership. He said, you know, the difference between a manager and a leader is the managers are down um, on the jungle floor with a machete cutting through the undergrowth saying, follow me. And the leader is up in the tree canopy saying, wrong jungle. <laughs> <laughs> So be the leader in your life who can see the bigger picture and get past the daily slog, yeah. get past the daily doing and be aware that there's something bigger happening than your daily doing. 
and get in touch with that. So be the leader. And then finally, recognize that you're free. And that takes us back to the, the S of, of sovereignty, of self-governance. You are free in your choice. Nobody uh, is in charge of you anymore. Once you're an adult, you don't report to anyone but yourself. And so you, you have agency. You can take action. You're not frozen. You're not incapable. You have competency. You are free to engage with the world on your own terms and bring all your gifts to the biggest fruits they can bear. So SE, mm -hmm. self-governed, ego-aware, leading, and free in your life. Then you're a self. You're a personality. You're someone who's high-functioning and making things happen. <laughs> That's my big excitement is that I finally feel like I'm making things happen. Yeah. And I had a lot of periods in my life where I felt frozen and incapable and incompetent. And I never have been. And that's the truth of who I am. Mm. But my ego awareness was blocked by stories that weren't mine. And my sovereignty was blocked by beliefs, the deep seated beliefs that I'm not in control of my life. I have this work that I'm doing at the central nervous system level now. One of the deep beliefs that I unseated was I have no agency mm. and I teach people that they have agency <laughs> and it's so deep in myself as a core belief that I'm still digging it out of the basement. Yeah, man. I, I love that. That's, that's so good. And that's your, that's your model that you came up with, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 yeah I kind of have this cute little in the book, my first book, just be your S E L F your guide to improving any relationship. I put all this together as you, you start out building a little house to live in, a little personality house, and you use the tools of these strategies, trust, independence, faith, negotiation. They're like anchor points to, to the foundation and to holding the walls up and to putting the roof on. And then you, and it's like the image of how a child, a preschool child draws a, a house for themselves. It's a cute little red house square with a pointy triangle roof on top, a little tree next to it, maybe and the sun is shining in the corner, right? <laughs> so that's your little house for your personality yeah. made out of all of those strategies. And then you have to drive out into the world. You have to go get out of your house and go be with other people. Mm. And so you need to have a car. You need to have choice, agency, and take responsibility for yourself, for all of that stuff that you are inside the house, take it out into the world and bump into other people in their cars. Mm. <laughs> That's the point. And when we do that, sometimes we have a lot of bad accidents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we, we have to, we all have to learn how to drive safely and bring that personality with choice, agency, and responsibility. Yeah. I'm responsible yeah. for the impact I have on you, even if it's an accident. Mm. And that takes us back to what you said about the adult conversation with grown kids. You know, to be able to sit down with my mom and say, you know, mom, I know you didn't mean for these things that you said to me to hurt me. You were trying to help me. And these are things that I still carry as pains mm -hmm. in my heart. They still feel like little tiny swords that poke me. Mm -hmm. And to be able to say that and to have her say, I know, I just didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't know any better was a sweet thing. <laughs> it was a very sweet thing in my adult life. So I think and the, what my friend did of saying, you know, get all your questions answered. That was a tough season. Let's, let's have you get all your worries out on the table. And let me tell you what was my experience about yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So good. hard, hard work. And this is the work of life to me. This is what spirit wants us here for. What God wants us to do mm -hmm. is to grow with each other and find these hard, broken places and heal with each other. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Well, listen, I feel like we could talk about all kinds of stuff for like five more hours. <laughs> well, 
Right. I'm like recalling, didn't we spend about a weekend in our pajamas yes. in front of a fireplace having this conversation? I don't know, a couple yes. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. We could do this for days. I we, have no doubt. We could just keep going. But for the sake of podcast limit time, we will, yes. we'll, we'll wrap it up for today. But I definitely want to have you back on and we can talk about more things. But really quick, just tell people where they can find your books, find your work, find um, more about you. Okay. Yeah. My website is easy to find lcarolscott.com. Just remember the L it's the first initial. Psst, it's Linda. It's nothing terrible. So <laughs> L, lcarolscott.com. Uh, there you can, there's a shop. You can buy my books and there's a page about my coaching that I'm offering to women's small group coaching right now. And I would also like to offer that a gift to anybody listening, send me an email at that URL. Carol, C-A-R-O-L, C-A-R-O-L at lcarolscott.com. And I will send you back a little bookette about the SAS and becoming your sassy self. It's my gift to you. Oh, you also have a TEDx. Where can people find that? There's a link um, also on the media page of my website. Okay, All perfect. of the podcasts that I've been doing, I've recorded I'll get close to 20 podcasts so far this year as a marketing strategy. And the links to those are on the media page. And so is the TEDx talk. I love that. Well, thanks so much for being here with me today and for, you know, schooling me. (laughs) My utter pleasure, Megan. I adore (laughs) talking with you. Thank you. Well, I feel like I say this every episode, but I feel like we only scratched the surface here. I adore having such insightful conversations with fascinating people. And I would say that even if Carol wasn't my aunt. I am going to put links in the show notes about ACEs as well as all of Dr. Scott's models and how you can get that free book at and learn more about her work. As always, if you enjoy this show, take a second to rate, review, like, and share. It helps new friends find us. If you want bonus episodes and more, be sure to become a member over on my website. It's only $5 a month. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I did. We'll talk more next time.